Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and thanks again for tuning in to another installment of the AJ Bruno Show. We're going to be discussing Mars today with Robert Zubrin, president of the Mars Society, an aerospace engineer, and a leading proponent of the exploration and colonization of Mars. So that should be an interesting conversation that we'll get to in just a second. Uh, we've had numerous space episodes before, but we're going to be going into Mars specifically in this episode. And uh, we're going to bring him on right now. Hello, and thanks for being on the show. Uh, hello. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. When did you first become so interested in Mars, and how did you decide to dedicate so much effort towards this goal? Well, I first became um, truly interested in space uh, at the time of Sputnik. I was uh, five when Sputnik flew, and uh, while to the adults it may have been a terrifying event, to me it was absolutely exhilarating. It was proof that the uh, spacefaring future that I was reading about in my science fiction books I was already reading at the age of five um, was was going to be real. I wanted to be part of it. So I went and learned everything I could about space and science. And my father got me a telescope and I launched rockets. Um, and I was a Sputnik kid. And uh, so uh, that's when I became uh, into it. And it hasn't left me since. Right. So a step to going towards Mars could be seen as establishing a permanent base on the moon, which we failed to do so far. Why has that been the case? Well, look, we, we had a massive failure of leadership in this country with the Nixon administration. Uh, you know, NASA had plans in 1969 to have uh, moon bases by uh, the, the late 70s, to have the first mission to Mars by 1981, to have a Mars base by 1988, and, and we could have done it. Uh, if we just kept going at the speed we were going with Apollo, we, we could have done it. And if we had done it, you know, the first kids to uh, graduate high school on Mars would probably be uh, doing that right about now. Uh, and um, uh, But that was the future that didn't happen. It was like Ferdinand and Isabella welcoming Columbus back from the New World and saying, oh, so you discovered a new world. Who cares? Burn the ships. Uh, that's pretty much uh, what happened. Uh, and we've never recovered from that. Uh, because we never, I mean, because the political class itself deteriorated. Um, you know, we no longer had the the, the, the men who helped win World War II uh, in charge. And, and so you get a, a group of people, uh, careerists, uh, uh, partisans, people unable or unwilling to execute great projects or to take great risks, uh, people without... Uh, um, uh, national spirit, um, uh, quite willing to sabotage great enterprises be, begun by members of the other faction just to have the satisfaction of seeing them fail. Uh, you know, 
uh, and and then NASA also deteriorated so that whenever they did get a green light, they were unwilling to take it. So uh, that's been the problem. But fortunately, we have a new force has been let loose on the problem, which is the private entrepreneurs who are launching a revolution in spaceflight. And um, and it, it's, it's not going to depend on a senile political class to do it for us. We're going to do it. Great. So before we get into that, um, you've stated that NASA has mostly had pointless, wasteful programs in recent times. Which do you single out in particular, and what would you have done differently? Well, uh, I don't think that the, the the shuttle and the space station programs were well-conceived. Uh, and I uh, and, and right now, uh, okay, this lunar orbit gateway and previous to it, the asteroid redirect mission were, were sim- are simply absurd. Uh, say the shuttle was not well-conceived. It was funding a thing, not a plan. Uh, a few of the shuttle missions were very productive, such as the launch, re- uh, repair, and upgrade of the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, that was about five of the 130 shuttle missions. If all 130 had been that productive, the shuttle would have been a great program. But unfortunately, most of the shuttle missions were uh, uh, meaningless. Uh, and, uh, and then you have the space station. A space station is a spaceship that doesn't go anywhere. It makes sense, as it were, like a training ship for ships that do go somewhere, like a training ship for the Navy. But uh, there's no point having a training ship if you don't have a Navy. And the, 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 uh, and the purpose of spaceships are not to be places where you put astronauts to measure the health effects of radiation and zero gravity on them. That's like sending sailors to sea to uh, measure the effects of, of seasickness and scurvy. Uh, you go to sea in order to cross the sea, to go to the new lands on the other side of the sea. And that's what spaceships are for. Uh, and so uh, NASA has been operating without a clear objective. Right now, notionally, its objective is to return to the moon, but they're not even building a lunar lander. They're building a lunar orbit space station. You need a lunar lander to land on the moon. You do not need a lunar orbiting space station. This is just something that the major aerospace contractors want to do. It's going to cost a fortune to build, a fortune to maintain, and that's the entire point. It's not an asset. It's an entitlement. So they're, they're building costs. They're building a, dr- a monetary drain into the agency uh, instead of executing a mission. Now, if you wanted to go to the moon, what you do is you uh, put out a request for proposal to private industry for people who are willing to deliver payloads to the surface of the moon, ask them how much they can deliver and for what price, um, and how much money they would ask to help them develop it. I think a reasonable request would be to match dollar for dollar their own development cost, one for one, uh, and then um, give them a certain amount of, of missions with it. Uh, like say, okay, well, well, you know, we will match you up to $500 million dollar for dollar to your build it, and then we'll give you 10 missions to fly it. And, you know, and that's where you'll start making money. If they did it that way, you wouldn't have programs in which the contractors intentionally take forever because they're just getting money all the time. Instead, they would be trying to do it at the fastest possible pace, at the minimum possible cost, because they're shelling out their own money and they're not going to make any money until they actually start flying the thing. Okay. 
that's how you should do the moon. That's how you should do Mars. And if we did the moon and Mars that way, we'd be on the moon in five years and on Mars in ten. No problem. Hmm. No, that's a good approach. So do you think then in the future, because the plan now is to get there in the 2030s, which might not even be a landing mission, um, do you think that the U.S. government will get there first? Will a private corporation like SpaceX or something beat them? Where do you see that going? Um, you know, uh, if that's their plan, they will never get there at all. And they will be, be beaten there not only by SpaceX, they'll be beaten there by companies that haven't even been started yet. Okay, because that's not a serious plan. It's like you saying to me, uh, you're going to climb Mount Everest uh, in 30 years. So in 20 years from now, you figure you'll start getting in shape. Okay, uh, that's not a plan. That's um, nonsense. That, that's uh, delaying action. The reason why we were able to get to the moon in eight years was because Kennedy put a deadline on it. If Kennedy said, we want to go to the moon someday. NASA will say, would, would have said, well, someday we'll start working on it. Um, and, uh, and that's all that would have happened. And, and, and then, of course, you know, you constantly have changes of the political winds. Uh, in, in the case of the 60s, 1968, the Democrats were replaced with Nixon, and he was not interested in continuing the Apollo program, which is why we didn't have a moon base in the 70s, okay, or a, a Mars mission in the 80s. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and if Kennedy had said, I want to be on the moon by the year 2000, um, they never would have made it. And noted space historians today would be going around saying, ah, yes, that vision of traveling to the moon that somebody had back in 1961, we all know they never really could have made it. You there, sir. Uh, well, sorry about that. Bit of a technical snafu. Okay. No, that that definitely definitely makes sense. So, in terms of going to Mars, though, some people would argue that there's a big leap. You know, the Moon is three days flight away, and the Mars mission would be seven months. Is it really that much of a difference in terms of the technology? Or do you think that's kind of overblown? Well, it's it's very overblown. We do space station missions that last six months all the time. And it only takes six months to fly to Mars. In fact, the InSight probe that landed on Mars today was launched six months ago. So we're not talking about future technology and Captain Kirk and warp drive. This is what we can do right now. This is what we just did. So your approach, um, the Mars Direct approach, you think that cost could be kept down? Yeah, whenever there are government projects for this, like you mentioned, the costs are so high that it usually scraps any ambitious plan. So what could be done differently that's more in model of what you propose? Well, the idea is you spend money to do things. You don't do things in order to spend money. Um, mm -hmm. NASA's robotic space exploration program, of which, of course, the InSight that just landed today on Mars is one example of, but we have Spirit and Opportunity and Curiosity, got the Hubble Space Telescope, and the Kepler Space Telescope, and the TESS Space Telescope, discovering thousands of planets orbiting other worlds, other stars, uh, you know, Voyager and Cassini and Galileo, and all these things. Those programs spend money to do things. The human spaceflight program has been taken over by 
the lobbyists of the corporations and of the political districts that are involved and basically just said, we want to milk you for money and we own you. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep you locked up in this room and we're going to drain your blood once a day. And the, 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 and, and, and we have to free the program from those people. Okay. We got to get these vampires out of the room. Um, that, that we got to have a human spaceflight program that spends money to do things. It doesn't do things to spend money. Okay. And I mean, imagine if you were running a business and you were letting the vendors control your expenditures. Say, well, we want you to buy this from us. Well, I don't need that. Shut up. Just buy it. Uh, and the, 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 um, you know, and, 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 and that's what we've got here. And it's outrageous. And the American people have got to demand their space program back because the space program doesn't belong to these vendors and it doesn't belong to the bureaucrats that are running it. It belongs to the American people. And we have the right to demand results. We are putting up the money. We have the right to demand results. We want a space program that's really going somewhere. We have the right to insist on that. So we must demand that nonsense like this lunar orbit gateway, okay, just be put aside. You, you say you want to go to the moon? Okay, I mean, we can have a, a reasonable argument about whether we should go to the moon or Mars first. But I'll accept either one of those as reasonable, provided you actually try to do it. Okay, you know, Kennedy, when he said we choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard, uh, and because no other task will be so difficult to do, uh, he didn't say to do it in the most difficult possible way. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the thing was objective driven. It wasn't driven by a desire to spread money around. Um, and the, the um, okay, so the idea was to get to the moon as quickly uh, as possible, not take as long as possible. So in order to be able to spend money on it for as long as possible, uh, you know, that, that's how we have to have a business-like attitude towards this thing. Um, you don't do things to spend money. You spend money to do things. And if you then reduce that to its most basic principle, you say, I want to get cargoes to the moon. I want to get people back and forth to the moon. Who will do it for me and at what price? Take the bids. Of course, somebody might give a low bid that you judge not to be credible. Just like if you're going to fix the roof on your house, you might take different bids. You might not necessarily take quite the lowest bid because you don't think the guy will do a good job. But if two vendors are equally credible, you take the lower bid. Mm. Okay, and that's how we got to run the space program. Got to run the space program the way we run our businesses, the way we run our houses. Makes sense. So looking forward, what do you predict the situation on Mars will be in terms of governments and corporations being present there in the next decades and in terms of claiming certain resources and areas? All right. Well, okay. As I say, the initial uh, program will be exploration and it will be a public-private partnership um, where we want to have – the government's going to need to put up some money, but we wanted to put it up efficiently. We want to put it up in a way that gets results. Okay. And we have entrepreneurial space companies right now that are spending their own money to develop systems that will allow them to make attractive bids for that kind of business. And we should take advantage of that. Okay. But 
uh, that's the exploration phase. But at a certain point, okay, both by exploring Mars, um, okay, we'll satisfy some of the major scientific questions that there are that are definitely worth investigating, like is there life on Mars? Was there life on Mars? What was it like? Uh, It's going to shift from a scientific base to um, a, a settlement program. And at that point, presumably by that point, we'll have learned a lot more on how to live and work on Mars to make settlement a much more um, realistic prospect. We'll know how to make fuel and oxygen, extract water, grow crops, make plastics and steel and structures of all kinds on Mars, uh, um, grow crops, all of it. Uh, Then I think you'll start to see settlements. And uh, I really think the settlements are going to be driven not primarily by economics as such, but by a desire for freedom of a unique type of people who want to have a chance to be the makers of their own world instead of just the inhabitants of one that is already made and whose shape has already been decided. I mean, there's nothing more valuable than freedom, nothing. And people will put up with economic hardship and deprivation in order to have freedom. And for groups of people to be able to say, we're going to go to Mars and we're going to create a society according to our ideas. And, and there'll be lots of them. I think there'll be lots of city-states on Mars organized in accord with very different ideas, some of which you and I might think are pretty strange. In fact, that might be one of the motives why they go just like that was the motive for the pilgrims going to Massachusetts or the Mormons going to Utah, all right? People thought, these people are weird. What the hell are they doing, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and why'd they go to Great Salt Lake of all places when there were plenty of nicer places in the West you could have gone? They, want, they went there uh, um, in order to have their own place, okay? And uh, same with the pilgrims going to Massachusetts or, or the Jews going to Palestine, for that matter, in the 20th century could have gone to America, it would have been a lot easier. Uh, and the, the, the um, uh, but there you go. And, and, and so I think we're going to see quite a variety of types of governments on Mars. And some will be uh, um, stupid and will fail for that reason. Uh, but others might be much better ways that get much better forms of social organization. that give people a much better chance to, realize their talents and potential. And then millions of people will flock to those places, just like they came to America for exactly that reason in the 1700s, the 1800s, and the 20th century. Um, and, uh, and, and then those colonies will grow and prosper and will become examples to the rest of humanity. This is how Mars is going to help bring human civilization forward. It's going to be a giant laboratory for what our founders called noble experiments. You know, the United States was called a noble experiment by Thomas Jefferson. Okay, they were putting the ideas of 18th century liberalism to work for the first time. It worked. Um, Freedom of speech, people in Europe said, oh, you'll have chaos with that. You can't have that. That, That'll never work. Okay, freedom of religion, you can't, everybody's got to believe the same thing or society's going to fall apart. So on and so on. They said, no, we're going to try it try it out and it worked and so america succeeded and it basically set the standard that is now the world standard that we basically judge whether a country is civilized by the extent to which it um, 
matches those those ideals. Some of those parallels definitely make sense. What about some of the more scientific and medical concerns? For instance, the effect that the radiation and the low gravity will have on people in the long term. And I've even heard that if you're born on Mars, you might not be capable you might not be capable of even coming back to Earth due to your, your bone structure. Well the radiation hazard is is overdrawn. We do need solar flare storm shelters on our spaceships as we go to Mars, but we can make those using the provisions in the ship can make a shielded area in case of a solar flare. Now on Mars itself, okay, yeah, there's gonna be one third gravity and that could well have uh, effects over time. Uh, I don't know if it would be impossible for a Martian to come back to Earth, but they probably think it was very unpleasant. Um, they'll wonder why anyone ever wanted to live here. Hmm. You know, <laughs> think about this one. Human race is native to Africa, not North America, not Europe. Hmm. We're native to the Kenyan Rift Valley. Okay, And if you and I went back to that area right now, we'd have to have all kinds of vaccinations or we'd undoubtedly get sick and die. Hmm. Okay. We don't have resistance to the diseases of our natural habitat anymore. Okay. Um, Well, uh, but would you want to live there instead of in America? Okay. That's a good point. Uh, You know, and uh, so Martians, they're going to enjoy one-third gravity. They'll find full gravity unpleasant. They'd probably have to work out. My guess is a Martian could come back to Earth, but he'd want to work out a lot and to prepare for it, and he wouldn't like it, and he'd be sure glad when he got home. <laughs> sure. So there's some people who disagree with terraforming Mars and don't want to radically change the planet. What's your response to that sort of view? Well, I think it's pretty silly. Um, I think, um, well, let me put it this way. It's a, it's a misapplication of political correctness. Okay. Um, because what those people are not, they're not really thinking about Mars. What they're thinking about is the earth. And in particular, what advanced technological societies did to less advanced societies during the colonial age. Okay. There's European imperialism to Africa, Americans, uh, uh, settling the West, um, you know, okay, we have, when I was a kid, Christopher Columbus was a hero. Uh, and there's still a statue of him in Columbus Circle. If you're ever in New York, you should go and see it, because on the side of it, it says, to the world, he gave a world. That's how people felt about Columbus. Well, now they picket Columbus Day parades, and they're not really picketing Christopher Columbus, uh, who didn't live to see much of what happened. He, they're 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 protesting the whole picture of uh, Europeans coming to America and colonizing it. And, okay, it has to be admitted that there were things of great intrinsic value here. There were the Native American cultures. There were giant herds of bison. There were towering redwood forests. All sorts of majestic nature, wildlife was here. And we um, replaced most of it. Uh, with what is here now, a continental nation, 300 million people living in uh, liberty and prosperity and cities and universities and used bookstores and all this stuff. 
and a nation that has invented, you know, steamboats and the telegraph and the telephone and electricity and the light bulb and nuclear power and aeroplanes and all of that. And, okay, so something valuable was lost. Something valuable was created in its place. Now, you can have an argument about whether more was lost than was created. I personally believe that more was created than was lost. However, I will admit that something was lost. Now, what if there had been nothing here when Columbus landed but a dead desert with at most a few bacteria under the rocks? Okay, no redwood forests, no bison, no Native Americans, none of that. Just a dead desert with bacteria in it, not even a cactus. Would anybody be picketing Columbus Day parades today? Hmm. I don't think so. Hmm. So it's really just crazy. Or put another way, if anybody was to come along and say, I want to take Earth as it is today and make it like Mars, everyone would think they were crazy. You want to take this world of ours with human civilization and forests and jungles and coral reefs and, and everything that we have, and you want to turn it into a dead desert with maybe some microbes under the rocks, you're a madman. I mean, and it wouldn't just be the Sierra Club saying this. Anybody would say that, right? Anybody would say that that would be the stupidest, the evil thing you could possibly think of doing. All right, fine. And I agree. It would certainly be extremely stupid and evil and outrageous and, I mean, beyond comprehension. Not even Adolf Hitler would advocate such a thing. All right. Well, if it is supreme evil to turn the living Earth into a dead Mars, then it must be a supreme good to take a dead Mars and turn it into a living Earth. Hmm. That's a good way to look at it. So I have a concern with going to Mars that I wonder how many people really think of. um, There's what, like a 40 minute delay in transmissions between the Earth and Mars. So if you go to live there, wouldn't you have to live without the Internet permanently? Well, uh, you'd live without um, the Earth Internet. Obviously, there would be an Internet on Mars. That would be uh, quick. Um, so, I mean, but look, when you have an email conversation with people, uh, how fast do they usually reply? Uh, occasionally, immediately. But I sent off a bunch of emails this morning that, I mean, one, someone did reply in about an hour, or several others they haven't replied yet. Uh, the idea of waiting 40 minutes for an email response is hardly unusual. It's, it's sort of about the typical pace of an email conversation. And it's much faster than how we used to converse, you know, before. I mean, um, when I was a kid, uh, long-distance calls were very expensive and rare. It would be a big deal if my father got a long-distance call. So in general, uh, while telephones were used for local conversations people wrote letters for long distance conversations and uh, uh, you wouldn't get a reply for several days hmm. now, people can live like that they've lived like that through most of human history sure so you've said personally that you would want to go to Mars um, but I'm curious if it was a one way mission and you'd have to stay there and couldn't come back since that seems to be the biggest issue, right? Returning. Would you still go? 
Yeah, I would. Because, um, you know, life's a one-way trip. We're all on a one-way trip to somewhere. And, um, you know, if I could have a shot at being um, part of, of, of something so historic as the, the human expansion to Mars, I, I, I would definitely want to do it. Now, I don't think that that's a realistic prospect for me. I'm 66 now, and, you know, uh, I'm, you know, the soonest we're going is 10 years. I won't be of the right age. Uh, but if I can have a significant role uh, in having made this possible, well, that's good enough for me. Sure. So in terms of exploration and colonization beyond just the moon and Mars, what are your best predictions for where that's going? Well, the next after the moon and Mars would be the asteroid belt. First, the near-Earth asteroids, and then the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. Um, there's thousands of worlds there that people can settle. And then the moons of the outer planets, and then eventually uh, to the stars. Sure. But, of course, that problem would be having a new sort of propulsion. I mean, the same technology we're using to go to... So Mars isn't really going to work for even the outer edge of the solar system or definitely its other solar systems. That's correct. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we'll need uh, uh, much more advanced propulsion systems and much uh, more powerful sources of energy to drive them. Um, I think that the energy source that's going to make possible interstellar travel will be fusion power, thermonuclear fusion. Um, it is... Uh, the, the largest um, source of energy known in nature. Um, and while the fusion program has been lagging for the past several decades, uh, actually the uh, space entrepreneurial revolution is having an effect on the fusion program, a profound effect. Because, see, what Musk did was he proved that it's possible for a lean, mean entrepreneurial organization to do things in, you know, one-third the time and one-tenth the cost that it had been accepted by uh, uh, governments of major powers uh, and had been thought that only the governments of major powers could do it all. And uh, he showed that they could do it quicker and cheaper and everything. And so people uh, with money started looking at this and saying, that's very interesting. So the problem with cheap space launch wasn't really technical, it was institutional. Maybe that's also the problem with fusion power. Maybe I should get into that, okay? Because, mm -hmm. of course, the business plan for fusion power is, uh, if you could do it, is rather more obvious than space launch. Um, and the, the humanistic potential of it is also extremely obvious. And um, so what we're starting to see now is fusion power startups getting funded, and I'm talking with serious money, $100 million, 200, in one case, $500 million. And I think that it's one of these that's going to make fusion power long before it's done by, um, you know, the national governments and national labs and the ITER program or things like that. That could be the way to go. So uh, to close out here, we've got a few miscellaneous questions. I saw that uh, Buzz Aldrin is involved with the organization. I'm curious what your collaboration has been with him. Well, Buzz, of course, um, uh, you know, is a great proponent of space exploration, and I would say uniquely of the Apollo astronauts has made it his responsibility to try to make sure that that wasn't just a stunt, but 
the beginning of a new age for humankind. And um, Buzz uh, helped um, get the Mars Society going. He was for a long time a member of our steering committee. Uh, I'm not sure if he is right now. Um, but um, Buzz, um, you know, also has unique technical ideas, some of which I agree with it, and some I don't. And he agrees with some of my ideas and some he doesn't. Uh, we're both in agreement on this lunar orbit gateway that it is a total bust. Uh, and that if you're going to go to the moon, you need to go to the moon. Um, and he's willing to speak up. A lot of people in the space business are afraid to contradict the NASA party line because then you don't get contracts and you don't get invited to places and, you know, you know all this. Um, Buzz is not afraid to speak his mind. Uh, he doesn't – he has – I mean, obviously all the astronauts have physical courage, but Buzz also has moral courage. Um, and that's a very valuable thing. Uh, that's important too. So there's a part series, part documentary called Mars that you're interviewed for. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and the way they depict Mars in the near future? Well, uh, they're about the National Geographic series. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the first season I, I thought was pretty good. Uh, the, um, you know, uh, and um, they had a can-do attitude that was reasonably realistic. I mean, some things weren't, but, you know, this is television, and, and you know, you, 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 they go for drama, and it has to be mm-hmm. that way. That's what it is. I mean, um, the, the um, I mean, you can imagine if a realistic movie about World War II, most of it would just be people sitting around waiting for something to happen, right? <laughs> the, the, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I mean, so with anything, okay, you have to. Uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I thought it was pretty good. And I thought it was interesting um, the technique that they used um, of going back and forth between a story, a dramatic story of this first team on Mars and interviewing various people in our time to get their thoughts on it. It reminded me in, uh, in an odd way of, I don't know if you know the movie Reds with Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton. It's about the Russian revolution. And this movie was made in the eighties and, um, and there were still a few people who were around at the time of the Russian Revolution who were still around in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, uh, people like Max Eastman and Rebecca West and so forth. Anyway, the point is they have this story of, of all this stuff going on in the Russian Revolution, and they kept on flashing to the present that it's the 1980s, and they were interviewing these people as to what they thought about what was going on in the movie. And so there it was uh, – the present looking back at the past and commenting on it. And whereas the national geographic thing was the present looking at the future and commenting on it. But, um, so I thought it was an interesting technique, uh, uh-huh. people in the present watching what's going on in the future and saying, well, I don't think he should have done that. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. Uh, this season, there's a lot of good stuff. Although I thought that this, the business with um, the evil corporations uh, um, it was a little bit too um, corny. 
Um, but, um, you know, I don't know what people have against, you know, miners and farmers and oil drillers and industrialists, the people who make everything that they eat and use. It's like, we hate mm-hmm. you because you make the stuff that we use. Uh, <laughs> and it's sort of, uh, I guess it's fashionable or something. But anyway, uh, but overall, I mean, look, uh, I think this was the first real Mars TV series because mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can you can make um, nits about this or that that isn't technically correct, but the spirit of it was realism, and it's really about humans trying to make it on Mars, as opposed to you know a shoot 'em up or a, basically a horror film or something of that sort, which is what most of the previous stuff was. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, overall, I, I'd say it's pretty good. No, that's definitely a different approach. So I saw you've had a, a Mars focus convention with your organization uh, the past two years. Can you tell us some more about that? Well, we have them every year. We've had them every year since 1998, and we're going to have another one uh, uh, this coming October, October 2019, in uh, the Los Angeles area, probably the University of Southern California is looking like where it's going to be, probably October. Um, mm. And these are great things. Uh, people uh, – well, uh, we can find out about them by going to the Mars Society website, which is marssociety.org. But we typically fill the morning with uh, speeches from uh, major um, participants in the program, uh, NASA officials, scientists, visionaries, uh, uh, people with very interesting ideas. Uh, and then the afternoon, a lot of the people who come to the conference get a chance to do their own papers in, uh, uh, half hour talks dealing with technical issues, philosophical issues, um, you know, everything uh, you can think of, uh, political issues, entrepreneurial approaches, medical issues. Uh, and then we frequently have panel debates. At the last conference, we had a debate uh, on the merit of the lunar orbit gateway. And we had a former NASA official debate me. And it was a kind of rip-roaring debate uh, between uh, – people could probably find it on YouTube – Robert Zubrin versus John Mankins on the um, subject of the Lunar Orbit Gateway. We like to hold debates. We think there's too many decisions that get made in the space program without anybody debating. Um, and, uh, you know, by, by doing that, that's how we try to get at the truth. No, debates are good. So uh, finally, are there any other projects or endeavors that you have planned with your organization or company in the future that you can expand more on? Well, um, we have uh, lots of things we're doing. We run you know, a Mars desert research station where people do practice Mars missions in the desert. We have what we call the University Rover Challenge where um, um, typically around 30 college teams who build Mars rovers take them to the desert. We compete them in exploration tasks. Uh, We're having a a contest right now uh, to design a uh, 1,000 person Mars colony. There's a $10,000 prize for that, by the way. Uh, And anyone can enter that. You don't have to be a student. You can be, but you don't have to be. Uh, So go to marssociety.org and take a look at that contest. Um, Get involved. Let's try to figure out how we're going to do this. Sounds like an interesting project going on there. And 
again, uh, thanks for coming on, and it was uh, fascinating hearing all your ideas. All right. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye. That was Robert Zubrin, okay. president of the, the Mars Society, and uh, really a, a great uh, interview and discussion with him about everything Mars-related and, and beyond that. So we'll be back soon with a new episode. Um, thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been A.J. Bruno with the A.J. Bruno Show. I'm signing off for now. Thanks. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.